Welcome to the first podcast in the Freshfield series, Navigating the US. Over the next few sessions, we will explore how best to traverse the ever-changing complexities of doing business in and with the US. We will be bringing together legal experts from Asia and from across the United States to share their thoughts and valuable experiences. This series will be of interest to anyone in Asia doing business with the US, whether it's Asian corporates with existing US investments or perhaps with renewed US aspirations, or those planning an exit and a return closer to home in Asia. Hot off the heels of the recent tumultuous US election, this series will also explore some initial theories about the implications of the new administration on the investment environment, the regulatory landscape, and on international deal-making generally. Hello, I'm Robert Ashworth, a Freshfields partner based in Hong Kong and the global co-head of our M&A business. Today, I'm joined by my fellow partners in Silicon Valley, John Fisher and Maj Vaseji, and in Washington, Eamon Mir. We are going to release our conversation today in two parts. The first part of the discussion will focus on the more macro deal environment for Asia businesses and will weigh up, now that the election is over, how that is likely to impact cross-border investments between Asia and Silicon Valley. In part two, we will be focusing on the intricacies of investing in and doing business in Silicon Valley. Let me start the discussion with John and ask the question many deal doers are asking right now. As the election uncertainty is, quotes, over, how is the investment landscape likely to be impacted? And assuming a new president is indeed sworn in in January, which areas should Asia businesses be focusing on? Thank you, Rob. And, you know, I think the answer to this question, right, you need to look at the two presidential candidates, uh, Biden and Trump. Biden, right, has a history of taking a measured, multilateral, rules-based approach to governing. You know, in some ways, it'll be a continuation of what we saw under the Obama administration. Um, you know, Trump, on the other hand, uh, is a bit all over the map, and and it's really, I think, hard to roadmap, um, you know, what, you know, cross-border relationships and cross border deal making will look like under a continued Trump administration. But but for purposes of, of this conversation, let's assume Biden is reelected. It certainly looks like that'll be the case based on, you know, the, the current status of election results. Um, so so assuming a measured multilateral rules based approach, I think there are really, you know, a few things that will drive deal making under Biden, right? You know, one, COVID you know, irrespective of the election results, I think COVID has an impact on U.S. deal-making that irrespective of whether Biden or, or Trump is president will continue for the foreseeable future. And that'll impact, for example, industries like life sciences, right? There's currently a halo effect on the entire industry. And, you know, Biden, as part of his stimulus plan, has said he will continue to invest you know, vast sums of money into life sciences. I, you know, you look at the 
securities market for life science companies. Um, so many IPOs this year, valuations that have exceeded several years combined in, in some particular sectors. You know, last year in life sciences, it was the year of uh, mega M&A deals. You know, this year in life sciences has been the year of partnering. You see a lot of collaborations. You see a lot of minority investments. Uh, 20% of all deals in life sciences have been a result of COVID. They've been directly related to either trying to mitigate the COVID epidemic or to creating the infrastructure to deal with a future COVID scenario. And I think under Biden, right, um, you know, he, he favors a stimulus plan where the U.S. invests significant amounts of money into infrastructure with a focus particularly on the supply chains that will enable the U.S. to independently, without relying on other countries, to sufficiently address a situation similar to COVID in the future. So, so I think, you know, for me, from a deal-making perspective, you know, I, I think investing in areas where, you know, the U.S. needs to expand or grow to become, you know, independent and non-reliant on other countries will be something that we can, I think, with almost, you know, certainty predict will happen in the U.S. Um, you know, Biden has been a cheerleader for free trade. I'm expecting that to continue. So, you know, the tariff wars that we've seen with Trump, um, you know, the, the unpredictable, you know, back and forth with respect to sort of what, you know, pet issues Trump, you know, sort of surface on media, right? You know, one, one year it was hardware and everyone was focused on Huawei. You know, the next it was data and everyone was focused on TikTok. I think under Biden, it'll, again, be a stable environment where folks can have reasonable conversations about, you know, areas that impact, that impact U.S. cross-border trade of other countries, including Asia. Great. Let me bring in Ayman, uh, who, as a former chair of CFIUS, has first-hand experience of regime change. Ayman, it seems to me that whilst Biden is the clear victor in the election with some 74 million votes... President Trump still polled the second highest number of votes in history with some 70 million. And that the Democrats haven't fully repudiated the political force that they've been fighting these past four years. Put another way, the blue wave that many pollsters were predicting didn't happen. How do you think that's going to play out going forward? Will the new administration be stymied every step of the way? Or is Biden's ability to work across the political aisle going to mean that international alliances, whether WHO, the Paris Accord on Climate Change, or the Trans-Pacific Partnership, for example, will be rebuilt? Robbie clearly hoped to act in concert with Congress on across the range of his priorities, but uh, assuming Republicans retain control of the Senate, his agenda is now going to have to be bifurcated to identify which priorities he plausibly can make progress on on a bipartisan basis and which ones he'll have to resort to tools of the executive branch. And, and there's clearly a lot that can be done without having a Congress uh, participating actively or supporting the agenda. And has been made clear by the past four years, not just the past four years. In fact, if you think about the, the period during which he was the, the vice president, there was quite a bit that... Uh, Obama administration was able to do using executive authority. So um, there's certainly 
uh, in the process now of, of trying to figure out which of these priorities where they may take a very different approach than the Trump administration had, they can uh, achieve, uh, or to the extent that there were policies that, uh, that Trump had reversed of the Obama era, they can reinstate uh, just through executive action. Now, you know, there, it's, there's certainly obviously a lot of reason to think that uh, we will see to some extent a reprise of, of, uh, of some of the approaches or priorities of the Obama administration, but he will certainly face pressure from, uh, from the, uh, the more uh, progressive side of the party, um, including potentially on trade issues that may make it uh, in some areas, notwithstanding his own instincts, a little bit more difficult to, uh, to make, uh, for example, uh, to, to just jump back into the TPP, for example. I mean, I think it remains to be seen whether that's, that's what, uh, what happens or whether he'll wait on the sidelines and, and see whether or not uh, he can, he, you know, what the approach will be on being able to address some of the perceived weaknesses of the process that the progressive side of the party may see. So um, I think it'll be mixed, but I think as, as John said, I think one clear outcome of uh, a Biden election would be an increased measure of predictability, not just for business uh, in the US, but, uh, but globally. And obviously from a, from a commercial perspective, that predictability, regardless of what the policy approach is, is going to be uh, a, a, a meaningful difference compared to the past four years. Okay, let, let me ask you particularly about China. The prevailing view is that the harm that's being caused to the US-China relations will not disappear in the short term, and that the US is hard line on China, tech, human rights, trade in particular, will likely continue given the mostly bipartisan consensus in the US legislature on these topics. Do you see it that way too? Or will Biden's renowned multilateralism create opportunities and bring both countries closer, especially on global issues like climate change and health security? I think we will see uh, certainly some differences. Many of those differences may be rhetorical, uh, but the rhetorical differences may be uh, intended to or may have the effect of allowing for cooperation in areas where it's where it's important. I mean, clearly, it's going to there's going to be continued importance in cooperating with with China on issues of North Korea and and, and uh, other security issues there's going to be importance in cooperation uh, uh, with respect to the environment um, and uh, I think because uh, Biden is likely to recognize the importance of creating space for that type of cooperation you're less likely to see uh, the type of heightened rhetoric that we've seen at least for the past uh, 10 months or so uh, certainly since the onset of COVID, where the language of the government, not just the president's, but clearly the State Department as well, has been much more in the line of Cold War, zero-sum rhetoric, uh, which which obviously makes more difficult cooperation in areas where there may be common interests. So I think we'll see a change uh, to allow uh, for engagement on areas of mutual interest. I think on the under with respect to the underlying security concerns, uh, and concerns over uh, technological competitiveness, uh, concerns over human rights, those will all remain. In fact, on human rights, uh, although we've, we have seen some action by the, the Trump administration in that regard, obviously the president's approach uh, was, uh, wasn't, Biden in fact may, may go further than, than Trump did on some of the human rights issues. 
um, especially if there isn't the same uh, sense of limitation that existed in prior Democratic or pre-Trump uh, with respect to the importance of uh, maintaining the same level of economic engagement to the extent that there is a, 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 some continuation of some element of decoupling, even if it's not as, as intense or active as it has been for the past four years, that may create opportunity for pressure on other areas that were where they weren't where it wasn't as much of a priority uh, in in prior administrations. T- turning to your particular area of expertise, CFIUS and, and national security, this has been a, a major feature of the China to U.S. investment landscape in recent years. Do you expect things to change at all with the new administration? So the the approach of the Obama administration as well on, on CFIUS issues changed in the last months of that administration because there was an increased perception in the United States that uh, China is made in, made in China 2025 policy and other similar uh, initiatives to build domestic uh, self-sufficiency in China uh, and it, outward investment policies were perceived as a threat. Um, and that, of course, was picked up and uh, with with uh, increased vigor by the Trump administration. And it's reflective of an underlying security concern in the U.S. that's likely to outlast the Trump administration. I do think there will be a change, uh, in again, in, in sort of the rhetoric and the emphasis on CFIUS as a, as a tool. So while I think you'll, you'll continue to see CFIUS actively review Chinese investment and many of the areas of investment that perhaps the Chinese government will be interested in seeing continue uh, from its own outward investment policy may be the very types of investment that will continue to be of concern in the United States. So I think in in the main, we'll, we'll continue to see that tension. At the, at the margins, there may be transactions that under the Trump administration may have had difficulty getting through even with substantial mitigation that may now be potentially possible uh, if CFIUS takes a a more um, sort of technocratic approach of looking to see whether or not there's a way to identify mitigation measures that can substantially reduce the risk, even if it doesn't bring it to zero, but brings it to a level that the that people can feel comfortable that it's unlikely to be used, the transaction is unlikely to be used as a means to uh, exploit some vulnerability. So there may be some additional transactions that can get through, and it'll be, you know, parties will have to look to see what transactions fall outside sort of the core areas of concern, which of course have expanded, and see whether or not there may be opportunities to uh, to propose transaction structures that uh, that may have enough built mitigation built in to to get the CFIUS comfortable. Okay, great. We've been looking so far really at investments into the U.S. Let's flip it round and ask. What, what the new administration will mean for um, U.S. businesses o- investing overseas, particularly given the growth potential that still remains in Asia. John, do you foresee greater investments from U.S. companies, Silicon Valley companies, into Asia, particularly, say, in the tech space? Absolutely. And, you know, Ayman, when he mentions decrease in rhetoric, you know, I think that's a, a generous take on you know, the Trump presidency. It's really, 
you know, a decrease in rhetoric coupled with, you know, spontaneous, irrational action that damages, you know, confidence in investing in, you know, countries targeted by Trump. Um, you know, for years, Trump, you know, vilified certain Asia countries as, you know, being responsible for, you know, the decrease in manufacturing in the U.S., for destroying, you know, American middle class jobs in, in key states. Um, so it's not just a decrease in rhetoric, right? It's really, you know, you know, vilifying a country and creating a dynamic where, you know, U.S. businesses are, you know, afraid to, frankly, invest in a country because they don't know what actions the president will take, which could be detrimental to that investment or the success of the venture that they're trying to build cross-border. You know, under a Biden presidency, again, um, you know, measured multilateral rules-based. You know, if, if you're an investor looking to, you know, benefit from an expanding market and, you know, it's a sector where, you know, there's already infrastructure and educated population, um, you know, VC funds and a growing population in place, you know, it, it's really, you know, absent that unpredictability of a Trump presidency, of course, investment's going to increase. So, so for me, it's really, you know, I think, I think investment, investments were already, you know, being made, you know, even prior to Biden, you know, taking the presidency. And I think once he's president, we'll just see a continuation of that. Um, you know, particularly in areas like, you know, clean energy, technology, you know, areas that Biden has identified as being core to his presidency. And, you know, countries like China are already, you know, you know, ahead of the U.S. and, and clean energy and solar panels and in certain certain sectors and and frankly, you know some of my clients you know have pursued joint ventures and then ultimately you know not not brought those JVs to closing. But I think under Biden presidency, they'll you know those term sheets will resurface and folks will begin to move forward. Yes, and I, I agree with you. I think we are likely to see a continuation of the the acqui hires that we've seen over the past few years uh, by U.S. corporations um, in China. Um, the one caveat I would mention is the the new export control law, which China implemented and becomes effective on the first of December. Um, that has clarified um, a broader list of controlled items, uh, including many dual, so-called dual-use uh, civilian and military items, whether it's goods, technologies or services. Um, this law, I think, was brought forward predominantly um, in response to the US administration's orders around TikTok and the forced sale uh, of uh, TikTok to a, um, a US owner. Um, uh, or at least its U.S. operations to a, a U.S. owner. And, and, and this export control law potentially has the scope to uh, restrict uh, such a transaction going through. Obviously, like many other um, Chinese regulations, um, the implementation rules and regulations still haven't been published and, and we'll need to see exactly how they play out. But I think this is a, a, a one uh, sort of caveat um, that I think we need to be mindful of in the deal-making space um, around potential future transactions between the U.S. and China. It's a great point, Rob. And, and frankly, you know, I view that as just another escalation in the arms race that was happening under Trump. 
Um, and I am hopeful that some of the language will be softened and some of that arms race will decrease under a Biden presidency. So there is indeed room for hope that a measured, multilateral and rules-based approach from the new administration will provide the clarity needed for corporates to act with conviction and with certainty going forward. On that optimistic note, let's wrap up part one of the podcast and I encourage you to join for part two where we will be discussing the hot issues to consider when deal-making in the Valley.